A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today with Ben Soffer. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the High Tech Ventures podcast. How are you today? Good morning. Good morning, Thorsten. Good to be here. That's great having you today. Where are you right now? I'm actually in Israel. I arrived a couple of days ago from London. And uh, although I actually did the COVID test and uh, antibodies test, I still need to be in isolation. So hopefully I will be released soon once my antibodies test is, is provided. So this means you have a lot of time for our chat today. Uh, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because we really know each other for, for quite some time. And I know that you're one of the most experienced people in tech transfer, also when it comes especially to life sciences. And this is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm really That's looking kind. forward to our conversation. That's um, very kind. So, but as far as I know, you are a lawyer by training. So maybe just for starting off, uh, give us how did you start your career um, and how did you transition from being a lawyer to then doing tech transfer? Uh, wow. So uh, I studied law. I served in the Israeli uh, Defense Forces for many years. And when it came to, uh, you know, choose my uh, my training, my profession, I, I opted to law because it was always you know fascinating to me how life is essentially projected or reflected through uh, through the the legal lens and i even went to germany as you may remember to munich to study law at lmu but then completed my studies in uh, in israel in tel aviv uh, and then went on to uh, <clears throat> to do my internship at the supreme court But very quickly, I became a kind of <clears throat> frustrated with law for the sim simple reason that if you are looking to do impact on society, uh, the legal profession is not necessarily the right profession because the law aims to impact society through regulation and via making you know sure that uh, people adhere to the law, Uh, which is, you know, very, very important. But uh, personally, I found it more, you know, uh, less interesting, let it put it uh, this way. So so I was looking for alternative ways, you know, to, to put a dent uh, on, on society, if this doesn't sound too grandiose. And, and the technology, especially being in Israel, was very, very uh, appealing. And then, you know, if you cannot uh, be an entrepreneur yourself because you lack, you know, the uh, the technical background, which, you know, I was lacking, then supporting and helping build ecosystems in a very meaningful way was the second best thing. Uh, 
so this is how I transitioned uh, into tech transfer, going through, you know, uh, investment banking, being involved in, in in venture building in other ways, serving as a diplomat in Boston. Uh, so, you know, helping create an ecosystem, uh, which for me was very, very exciting. And then bringing this experience back to Israel and helping build an ecosystem uh, within, you know, a leading university like the Technion, which is where I ended up. So this is a long answer to uh, to a short questions, but I hope it will suffice. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, Technion is a very renowned university and research organization, uh, and you worked in tech transfer therefore for quite some time. Um, so, so give us a closer picture of uh, what your role was actually looking like and uh, what you did at Technion for 15 years, something like that. Yeah, for for almost uh, yeah for over 13 years, I was uh, uh, serving as uh, the CEO of the tech transfer of uh, of the Technion. Now it's the leading technical university in Israel. Uh, it's always referred as the MIT uh, of uh, of uh, of Israel, certainly, but the Middle East and possibly more. But we prefer to say that uh, uh, MIT is the Technion of the United States. You know, being as modest as we are. Uh, and and then we transition. So tech transfer is exactly the crossroad be between basic uh, science and, uh, and 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 applied research and commercialization. And and the concept behind it, and my personal belief was that universities that will not be able to demonstrate their impact on the marketplace by creating jobs by creating companies will become less relevant. Now, in Israel, it was very, very interesting because if you take the total budget of all Israeli university at the time, I don't think it has changed much. It is less than half of the research budget of a university like MIT. So Technion research budget was at the time about 100 million. You know, you put the Hebrew University, Weizmann Institute, Tel Aviv University, and Ben-Gurion University. So the five leading universities combined is less than the 1.5 billion research budget of MIT, including the Lincoln Lab. And yet, these universities are able to produce huge amounts of innovation. And this is supplementing the other engine of innovation in Israel, which is, of course, the defense forces. So in Israel, you have two main you know, engines of innovation. One is the defense force, which is a major catalyst of innovation, uh, focused uh, mainly on information-related technology, material, etc. And then... All the rest, energy, life sciences, medtech, biotech, all coming from from the universities, and this this creating of created a very very exciting you know environment to work in. And uh, during my time, we had uh, we have built a portfolio of about 100 spin-ups companies, ten of which you know had a total market valuation of over 10 billion dollars. So this is quite a significant dent that we were able. And still do to put, uh, you know, on on not only the Israeli economy but uh, you know the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Israel is deemed as one of the strongest startup ecosystems worldwide. Also, the venture capital per capita, I think, is one of the largest in the world. What do you think? What are the strengths of the Israeli ecosystem that makes it such an entrepreneurial country? And uh, going beyond just the general startup ecosystem, what makes Israel particularly strong in deep tech venturing? 
Yeah. Now, so thanks for for this, Dorshan. I think you you you've been you know you visited Israel you know several times, and we've been you know I've been with you in some of the trips, so you were able to witness this firsthand. And you're absolutely right. Israel is one of the richest countries in the world when it comes to venture capital availability per capita. So we have about seven, eight billion dollars on a population of you know uh, seven, eight, nine million people. Uh, it's quite rich uh, in itself, but I think this is this is not what is necessarily unique about Israel. I think what is unique is the issue of speed, uh, the risk profile of the average Israelis, and the willingness to um, to be you know to be disruptive. So, what for many years was actually holding back and um, a kind of a disadvantage for for the Israelis is, is proving now to to be an, an advantage. So Israelis are questioning everything. It's actually based even on Judaism. In Judaism, there's a concept which is called so if I'm questioning something, if I'm questioning my teacher, if I'm questioning my rabbi, so to speak, this is actually celebrated. And in today's economy, these things are critical in order to, to bring about disruptive innovation, especially in deep tech. So you do need to question everything. And in deep tech, as opposed to, uh, you know, other technologies, which are most uh, business model based, it, it, it is quite critical. And the other thing is, against, uh, again, the culture. <clears throat> so the culture in Israel is uh, a side of, of uh, you know, encouraging disruptiveness and questioning everything is also encouraging risk taking. And and this is, uh, you know, again, goes back to our, uh, you know, upbringing, the history, uh, our service in the, in the military, in the defense forces. So there is a sense of urgency that you find in Israel and in other countries that are in a similar geopolitical situation whereby they are threatened. So Israel is essentially a paranoid country and it... It grows paranoid people, and the best entrepreneur uh, and CEO that you can have is a paranoid CEO. So we have plenty of those. And uh, if you look at countries, so you know countries like South Korea, uh, Singapore, these are all small countries that are threatened, and this actually keeps the people very focused and um, and very you know time sensitive. So they, they they value the importance of time the importance of speed and this is something which is uh, you don't <clears throat> you don't always uh, see so so these two cultural things which are tied uh, into the issue of funding are i think uh, three very very uh, important drivers that help israel be you know the power that uh, it is today in in innovation yeah, great insight that probably there's paranoia lacking in Europe so that, that we get more <laughs> deep tech yeah, out yeah. of resource. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's paranoia, Thorsten, to be honest. You know, it's uh, look, uh, Europe is, is the, I would compare Europe to an old, you know, to a high forest, to one of the black forests that you have in Germany. So it doesn't allow many things to grow underneath because of the power of the big companies. In Israel, until very recently, there were 10 companies selling over, you know, a billion dollar a year. And it, in Europe, it's unheard of. So Israel is a young country. 
And uh, so it's essentially you can look at it as a, a fleet of uh, speedboats <clears throat> roaming the seas. And, uh, and again, also, if we go back to the culture, the, the culture of entrepreneurship and risk-taking is very much celebrated. Uh, so if you fail as an entrepreneur, you're not looked down upon. You're even celebrated. And, and our culture heroes in Israel are certainly the entrepreneur. It used to be the generals. You know, the 30, 40, 50 years ago when Israel was fighting for its existence, physical existence. But today, it is, uh, you know, it's different. And the cultural heroes today are definitely the entrepreneurs, the people, you know, that help shape the world. Companies like Mobileye that was sold to Intel for $15.3 billion. Uh, dollars, you know, uh, drugs that were uh, developed by Israeli researchers. Now, like Azilect for Parkinson from the Technion and other drugs for Alzheimer's from the Hebrew University. Uh, so, so the issue of making the, the world a better place via innovation has become, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, critical. And I think uh, the good news is that, uh, you know, Europe is now catching up very, very quickly. So Europe is like you know, uh, uh, a very good uh, Russian horse rider that it takes maybe Europe a long time to prepare the horse. But once the horse is ready, then, you know, you ride the horse very, very quickly. And and I have a feeling that this is where Europe is now. Don't forget that 30 years ago, when you talked about ecosystems of innovation, it was essentially, you know, Silicon Valley, Boston, maybe, and Tel Aviv, more or less. Now it's all over the world. So it's much more spread. People finally caught up to the idea that a startup is the best place to do innovation. Why? Because it's very flat organization. There's no politics. Then there's a great deal of focus. So all the energy is, is essentially directing in achieving the goal. And this goes back, again, if we talk about Israel, to, to the military, how this interferes. So in the military, you will learn exactly that to work on small teams and to have a very clear mission and to deliver, you know, regardless what it takes. And this kind of mentality, you know, feeds very well into the startup vehicle. And again, if you think about it, the startup is the best invention ever to do innovation uh, because of what I've, uh, I've just said. And I do remember that we had... <laughs> two or three years ago, a workshop in Tel Aviv um, with some of the TTO people from Israel and also TTO people from Germany. And I, I, there, there were some guys from Israel mentioning that they felt like something like, for example, Fraunhofer is missing in the Israeli ecosystem, so applied research organization. They felt like in a very early stage of a technology development, They need to spin off the technology and get this very expensive venture capital into these speedboats, which they felt like shouldn't be necessarily the case. They, they would like to have a more uh, longer um, path inside the research organization to get to a higher majority of the technology. And then it could be spin off. And uh, it's not that expensive to get venture capital in very early on. So do you also see that there's there's a gap uh, and that maybe for, for to some extent having a longer uh, technology development inside a research organization has also benefits? 
Yeah, so so you know there, there's uh, again uh, a clear difference between the Israeli model and the European, and especially the the German model. So if in 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 Germany you have 51 Fraunhofer, you know, applied research institution. In Israel we have 7,000 because each startups is working essentially as a miniaturized, you know, Fraunhofer as a miniaturized entity to do applied research with endless, uh, you know, funding. So. So, of course, I'm not ruling out that innovation can be done in large organizations. But uh, if, if you look at, you know, some of the breakthroughs, uh, many of them were done actually by the startups and then acquired <clears throat> uh, by the bigger organization. Uh, but still, some of the biggest breakthroughs that were done, you know, in past years were done by the bigger organizations. <clears throat> Uh, and even by the government, including you know the inventions of uh, of the internet, so to speak, that was done via DARPA, and you know uh, uh, conquering of space, etc. But innovation at a let's say uh, uh, scale is done, I believe, more effectively in in, in smaller uh, organizations. Okay, then, then let's do the deep dive into your activities back at Technion. So you said you, you did more than 100 spin-offs from, from Technion in the time when, when you worked there. So can I imagine, like, because there's this risk appetite uh, for in Israel that all the researchers are working on great technologies and they are willing to become entrepreneurs? Or how did uh, spin-off building in general work at Technion? And what is, what is your idea how to do it best? Yeah, so so the the concept Thorsten was uh, not to take brilliant scientists and to try to turn them into mediocre, uh, uh, you know, business people because this is uh, normally it's a lose lose because of the very high level of risk. So uh, the the approach that I very much advocated and encouraged was to bring on board entrepreneurs, skilled entrepreneurs, and to compensate them you know, generously for the risk they are taking in equity, not in, you know, funding, and uh, and then use them as agents of the marketplace between the, uh, you know, uh, at the campus to look at technologies, identify the, the, the promising technologies, and also find the right uh, application. Because most of technologies developed in academia, as you very well know, are technology looking for a problem. So we actively looked for entrepreneurs and we build a business model that allow these entrepreneurs to share the upside in a generous way. And uh, this is how we, we reached a situation where we had, you know, uh, 100 companies at the time I, I left. Again, our philosophy was that the tech transfer is like, uh, you know, a tag boat in a big harbor. Our purpose was not to be the captains of these huge vehicles and, you know, to navigate them, you know, through the stormy seas, as you see in some of the universities in Europe where the tech transfer organizations are very heavy handed and, uh, you know, they, they aim to continue to support the venture uh, for a relatively long time. We, we saw our role very differently. Our role was to serve as a tag boat and to ensure that these technologies leave the harbor of the Technion or the universities, for that matter, in Israel as quickly and as, uh, and as efficiently as possible. And uh, we wanted to ensure that they uh, succeed. So our 
model was not to put, uh, you know, constraints in a business model which will not allow them to attract funding. So the royalties or the equity that we took reflected that approach. But still, we wanted to be part of uh, of the upside. So we didn't want to maximize the, you know, each and every deal that we did. We want to maximize the numbers of deals that we did with good entrepreneurs. Now, <clears throat> the challenge was always finding these entrepreneurs because the problem is that many people don't appreciate the level of risks that is involved in taking a technology from, you know, a deep tech technology from that stage and bringing it to the marketplace and the time it takes, the resources it says, and the frustration it takes. Uh, and when you connect with, you know, entrepreneurs that don't appreciate the risk, you are doing a disservice uh, not only to you, but first and foremost to them because they will eventually, unfortunately, fail because this is a marathon. And uh, and then it will be, you know, it could be devastating, uh, you know, for everything and for everyone. And uh, and uh, and the technology itself may also, lose, uh, you know, lose the window that it had in order to um, to succeed. So to your question, <clears throat> it was developing, first of all, changing the DNA of the organization to make it more entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs friendly. B, developing the set of mind and uh, the, the governance internally that, that allow to facilitate this. So changing the IP ballows that they become more inventor-friendly, more entrepreneur-friendly. And C, developing the resources. So we, we, we set up incubators. At the time, I was uh, also the CEO of uh, two internal incubators that we have, that we have built, one called the Drive which was focused on more on information technology-related uh, 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 stuff. And the other one was a meet, which we set up with Alfred Mann with a donation of $100 million to focus on medical devices. Uh, so we definitely developed the infrastructure internally to allow these ventures to cross this death valley that still exists to a great extent between academia and the marketplace. So um, I fully understand the challenge of finding the right entrepreneurs. Uh, so give us an idea from your perspective and your experience. How does this ideal high-tech entrepreneur look like, if there's an ideal persona at all, of course? And, and where do you find them? Um, in Israel, but also you have quite some experience from other ecosystems. Where do you find them? Yeah, so again, great uh, question. So... So where do you find them? And sometimes they come to you, and uh, and Israel is again is a place that you have many such entrepreneurs that don't want to go work in big organizations. They want to build their own destiny, control their own destiny, especially in an era like today where there's no job security. So actually, in Israel today, not to be an entrepreneur is actually the risky thing, which is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, you know, everybody's looking to work for the BMW, the, the Siemenses of the world, the Bosches of the world. But in Israel, you know, uh, not to be an entrepreneur has turned out to be the risky thing uh, because we see the shifts in this big, big industries. Uh, so we will find them through the ecosystems, through our ties with, you know, the venture capital community. We could easily put, you know, uh, ads in our uh, the digital medias that 
you know, we are looking for strong entrepreneurs uh, that can take these kind of technologies. Uh, but we have reached a situation whereby they, in many cases, come to us because they appreciate the uh, the opportunity, because they know that technologies that are developed by these kind of leading research institutions in many cases are undervalued. So they come and they get, you know, a very reasonable agreement. But but what we did is have a very robust vetting process to identify them because you need people, and this goes to your question, Thorsten, like who are they? So these are pe- people that have both their left brain and their right brain very much developed so they can talk to the scientist and gain her or his respect by understanding the technology. But at the same time, they need to be able to talk to the venture people and you know, send the message that they have a very clear vision how to monetize this because this is the one of the main challenges of these deep texts that come from academia is the business model and how you actually make it work and eventually how you make money because if you don't make money, you know, at the end of the day, you will fail. At some point, you do need to start making money. Uh, so, so these are the criterias that um, that we applied, and again, we we were we were very careful with identifying and testing the uh, the entrepreneurs in 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 different uh, ways. Sometimes the entrepreneurs were actually the PhD students <clears throat> that were working on the technology. And uh, we were actually encouraging this, although they lacked the experience, but they still, they had the passion, the energy, and of course, the scientific, you know, expertise because they were the developers of the technology. So many of the successes actually were of PhDs that instead of going down the route of, you know, working for a big company, they decided to embark on this journey of becoming entrepreneurs, which is, again, a profession in itself. Yeah, and I think that there's many research organizations, universities looking desperately for this persona, this business savvy uh, persona, and at the same time having the understanding of what it does, what it takes to develop technologies, and being able to communicate uh, with researchers and scientists, kind of on on eye level, right? And this is very very tough. And you've been talking about developing Technion into an entrepreneur-friendly ecosystem, what does that actually mean? So what kind of offering do you need to provide to these kind of, of entrepreneurs so that they feel like this is the place where I will start my next endeavor, my next mission? And uh, talking also about alignment of incentives, what, what does a deal structure look like when this entrepreneur says, I'm going to build the company And the, te- and the research organization is going to provide the technology. And what kind of deal is the one where you feel like this is aligning the incentives in the right way? Yeah, so uh, so again, uh, great question. So the, the, on the issue of working with the entrepreneur, I always say that building a company is like sending a spacecraft to space. So this 10 minutes that you pull away from gravity consume endless amount of energy. And the only person to inject the energy into the process is the entrepreneur. Of course, you also need the support of the inventors, you know, the professor, etc., because it's very hard to commercialize a technology coming from a university without the active involvement 
uh, of the professor. So, of course, you, you need the entrepreneur to build rapport with the professor. Uh, it's almost in, inevitable. As far as the business model is, is concerned, when we had a team, essentially, you know, the, the IP bylaws, uh, most Israeli universities in many places around the world say that, you know, you split it more or less 50-50, you know, the fruits of the invention. Now, in most cases, these models are, are simply not viable. You know, if if fifty uh, percent of the proceeds, uh, be it equity or royalty, goes to the university, which is perceived as dead equity, then this this in many cases is not is not viable because you know there's two concepts. There's the the, the the concept of technology readiness, which we all know, taken from NASA, going from one to ten, and you know it very well. But there is the investment readiness. And when you talk about investment readiness, it's having the team in place, the right team in place, and having the funding. And in order to have the funding, you need to have a commercialization model that makes sense, that will allow to attract additional capital into the company because at the end of the day, you pay with equity. So what we applied was twofold. First of all, to ensure alignment, as you said. Alignment means that we, the entrepreneur, the inventor, are all holding more or less, as much as we can, the same type of rights. If it's equity, it's equity. And if it's equity, we all need to hold you know, common shares. Uh, if, if it's royalty, which is a model that I less favored, then again, we need to find a way to ensure uh, uh, you know, alignment. My priority was always, always uh, to take equity. However, when you do a drug and you have billions of dollars pouring in to develop a drug, sometimes you don't have any other choice. But a drug is very, very different from engineering projects. Why? Because the core technology is protected by, you know, three, four patents. So you can protect your asset very effectively. And you can monitor and monetize it. And you, sorry, you can monitor the sales and you can monitor any breach of your rights very, very effectively, which you cannot do in an IT or an engineering project because in an engineering project, you are mostly investing in the team. So if you ask me what was the model, so if it is a pharma, gene therapy, cell therapy, et cetera, we would take royalties normally a you know low single digit from revenue period okay and this was very clear cut and it proved to us very effective because one of the major sources of our income was the development of azilect which is a, a, an anti parkinson drug uh, but in all other projects including medical devices which we you know is essentially an engineering project we 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 took equity no royalties, and then keep the equity at a level which is reasonable. Sometimes we took, you know, what we call golden shares. So it's a, a low single-digit number, yeah, you know, that is uh, protected up to a certain amount of capital that is raised. It can be five million, it can be two million, it can be ten million, depending on the technology. But you know, it created clarity which is, again, very, very important when you are going this down this very treacherous road of developing and bringing technology to the marketplace. 
Yeah, and probably this clarity is also something that the experienced entrepreneur is demanding. Absolutely. Right? Before that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they cannot tie themselves to a decision-making process, which is too convoluted, Thorsten. And you know it very well. I mean, the most important thing for them is time. And if they enter an organization which is confused, an organization which you don't know who is making the decision-making, an organization that doesn't know what is the business model that is required in order to push these technologies you know, out the door, then very quickly you will find out that the good entrepreneurs are just you know, uh, switching off very, very quickly and uh, going elsewhere. Wonderful. So uh, we already tapped into the field of life science ventures, and you mentioned several times that you like the startup itself as an innovation process, so to say, because it means speed. Now, life science projects are not known for high speed uh, in general. It takes probably way longer to develop these kind of ventures. Uh, since you are very experienced in that field, um, and you just mentioned one of the Alzheimer projects that you've been uh, involved with back back at, at your Technion times, what are the particularities of life science venturing? How is that different from all the engineering and IT-based ventures? <laughs> Yeah, so so as you said, if it's drugs, then it's definitely the amount of capital that is required, uh, which is you know much greater. This is this is going to change now with the availability of data, artificial intelligence, and all this. I expect that this will change because all this will make the processes of clinical trials more efficient. Everything, the drug discovery will be more efficient. Everything will become more efficient now in this area that we live in. And uh, and also in medical devices, but they also it is slow also not only because of the development, but also because of the reimbursement issues. So people tend to focus very heavily on the issue of a regulatory approval. But there are many products that that failed, even although they obtain, you know, the FDA uh, or the necessary other necessary regulatory bodies approval. At the end of the day, if you don't have a reimbursement code for the, the you know developments that you have even if it's in medical devices then you know the technology is still is still going to fail and this is something again which is very unique to uh to the uh to the life sciences uh, uh sector but i think now with covid uh this is all going to change uh quite dramatically we will see more repurposing of existing drugs uh, to treat uh, new you know new conditions because what ai uh, allows us is exactly this to find needles in a haystack of data and and here data is key and with ai we will be able to do this repurposing much more quickly if you will um, and this is true again, as I said, also for uh, for uh, clinical trials, because you can look at the data, also the historic data, and see the side effects. Everything is is more or less known and can be analyzed. Um, and and this is, uh, I think, going to uh, <clears throat> to change the way discovery of new drugs is 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 being done. So if it cost one billion, a minimum of one billion to develop a drug before, I think with AI, it can easily be half of that. And, you know, this is before even I started talking about the, the you know, DNA uh, sequencing, et cetera.
which is also going to be a, a game changer in all of this. Starting with the end in mind is becoming, you know, more critical. And that's why I personally believe that uh, working closely for medical device company, especially with the end users, which are the hospitals and the consumers, of course, is critical. And and today, in many cases, you have this this kind of disconnect whereby technologies are developed without having, a, first of all, a robust dialogue with the hospitals, with the clinicians. Uh, and this is, I think, um, this is going to change very, very rapidly with the changing role of the hospitals because the hospitals will no longer necessarily be seen as a play to treat acutely, you know, uh, people with trauma. Hospitals will be a playground to do innovation in order to make sure that actually people don't come to the hospital. Because you introduce the prevention and, and, and the mechanisms in time to ensure that actually people don't come to the hospitals. Uh, so, so I think people, to some extent, still underestimate the, uh, you know, the shift that COVID has, uh, you know, has, has brought about. We have evolved from an industrial era, you know, the 19th, the, the beginning of the 20th century to the information age. And, you know, now we are in the intelligence era. So, so we are all, you know, data dots, if you will. And any medical device will, which will not be data driven will be less relevant. So today, every company is a data company. Either it collects data it needs data or it uses or generates data. And every individual or consumer has, you know, uh, certain attributes that can be labeled or identified and uh, processed or, you know, profiled. So, so the digital technologies uh, are, are certainly going to be key. Now this data is held by organizations, but I assure you that this is not going to be the case. The same way that you opt out and you say today, you know, when you log into uh, to Google, etc., you know, do you allow to use uh, certain pieces of data that you provide? You know, when you uh, log into Google or Facebook, you will you will uh, essentially give consent you directly, the consumer, uh, to use your clinical data, and you will get certain benefits out of it. Uh, but data will be shared directly by the consumer, and this this again will accelerate, I, I believe, significantly the innovation in 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 healthcare. So, you know, in the in the nine eleven attack, I was I was actually in the states in Boston, and uh, you we you, we all remember how this transformed the industry, the security industry, all the area of government surveillance, and now we all take it for granted that there are cameras all over the, the, you know, the place. We all see how air travel has changed in a heartbeat. And COVID-19, the pandemic, will do exactly the same thing in, in healthcare. You know, it will, um, it has already prompted a rapid, you know, a radical innovation in, in healthcare. And I think this is, uh, this is not going to stop anytime uh, soon because COVID sharpened uh, the focus on the weaknesses of our existing healthcare system, both in developing drugs, in treatment, and in in other uh, modalities, and uh, and again, we now realize that the hospital is not a place for people to come to come and get fixed. 
Okay, uh, a hospital is an innovation playground uh, to make sure that people stay healthy and do not need to come uh, to the hospital to get acute care. Agreed. And uh, I just read yesterday on the newspaper that some life science experts in Germany are still astonished that it was doable to develop the vaccine within one year for, for COVID, exactly. right? which already is showing us how the landscape of drug development is changing and how rapidly it is changing. And uh, there will be lots of effects Uh, that we are now seeing in the next couple of years due to this development. Then you touched upon the more totally uh, digitalized healthcare landscape and maybe also doing it more remotely than we are used to today. What are other big trends that you see in the, in the healthcare um, startup sector and what are maybe specific startups that are very exciting from your opinion? Yeah, so all the area of personalized medicine, I think, is very exciting. Uh, robotics, uh, we touched briefly on the issue of uh, repurposing of drugs. Uh, in general, the issue of productivity and quality. Uh, you mentioned remote monitoring, remote treatment. All this is going to be very exciting. So, so if you talk about personalized medicine, so, you know, with AI, you can easily uh, recognize patterns in the data of you know millions of patients. So, but if you can do that, you can make the treatment on an individual based on, a, you know, uh, in, in a much more personal way. So you will have better outcomes for the individual, okay? And uh, what happens today is that you go into the hospital, you essentially go on a production line, right? You, you're giving a standard battery of tests until the hospital, you know, figure out what exactly your problem is. But this is, again, going to change radically with the healthcare, which, you know, we can call 4.0. It's like industry 4.0. So, so you will have much more intimation in the healthcare system. You can go about your daily business. You will wear your watch or, you know, your smartphone And uh, the data from these devices will allow the AI systems to detect problems and recommend personalized treatments before you know that anything is wrong. So this is definitely something which, you know, is very, very exciting, the personalized. Uh, re the repurposing, we already discussed in the era of discovery of new drugs. Again, AI will be a game changer in, in the discovery. Uh, as we discussed uh, before, if we talk about productivity and quality, I mean, just think about all the image processing technologies that uh, that you apply today. Uh, so when it comes to productivity, uh, you know, it will be totally different from what we see today in healthcare. And don't forget that in healthcare, productivity is key. Uh, because in healthcare systems across the world, by the way, not in Israel, in Germany and Britain, all over the world, demand consistently, consistently, you know, ad stripe supply. So there will always be more demand than supply. So if you can provide more service for the same expense, uh, you know, for the same expense, essentially, you will have a healthier population, not a greater number of unemployed doctors or, or nurses. So simp simply... But people will consume more healthcare, and the world essentially will be <clears throat> will be much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, much more healthier. And X-ray and examining X-ray and MRI scan is just uh, just a small example. 
because today it is done at least as good as it's, it's done by a radiologist. And just think about the the much better productivity that that uh, that we generate by using this, you know, AI driven uh, technologies to uh, to examine X-rays, MRIs, and and other imaging modalities. So this is another AI. The other one is uh, remote monitoring, so remote uh, treatments. Uh, I think again, this is by by COVID. Uh, by the COVID crisis, you know, I remember I 20 years ago, I served in, in Boston. And uh, even then, people were talking about telemedicine, but they were way, way ahead of the curve. And you probably remember it too, Thorsten. So telemedicine is not something new here. I mean, in Switzerland, it was introduced in 2003, but it was ahead of the curve. You know how they call people that can see, you know, the future. They called it futurist. But uh, people that can tell you when the future will come, they call they are called differently. They are called billionaires. Why are they called billionaires? Because the issue of timing is critical when you talk about innovation. And and I think this is what we are seeing uh, today with remote monitoring and later on with remote treatment. So uh, remote health monitoring uh, for uh, you know is 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 booming already. Um, people are already, of course, using it not only to treat COVID uh, patients uh, with milder symptoms, uh, but you see much more. Even here in Israel, you see ads all over the place, you know, for essentially monitoring people and giving uh, advice uh, via, via, you know, video conferencing uh, modalities. And then you combine it with the Internet of Things that is also going so this is this is a total revolution on all the wearables industry. Oh my God! So this is going, you know, to 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 be you know the perfect storm in, in that sense. The combination of AI with the wearables, with the Internet of Things, medical the Internet of Things, etc. It's it's going to be you know the perfect storm. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to see how many wearables are already collecting data on gold standard levels. Sometimes uh, something like sleep tracking, ECGs, but also having data to to anticipate whether someone is developing something like COVID right now, right? Uh, so there's there's Whoop, for example, a US based company that has been shown to have the data to anticipate you are going to be sick in two or three days from now, which is really astonishing exactly. to see, right? And this is changing the, the whole landscape. Um, so I'm wondering, since you mentioned Boston, which is probably still the place to be worldwide for healthcare, biotech, and life sciences, but who do you see in this new development and those new technologies coming in? AI is one of the key drivers here, also changing the healthcare sector. What are the global places that are maybe ahead right now or will be ahead uh, in the future? So Boston will will definitely, um, you know, uh, continue to lead. Why? Because you know, innovation is not an an an, an adding formula. Innovation, uh, being a leader in innovation, is a multiplication formula. So if you have one ingredient in this formula, either zero or equal to zero, You're lost. then the total outcome will be zero. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you have uh, VC money, if you have, uh, you know, good technologies and you have good hospitals and you have good accountants and good lawyers and you have all the, all of this, but you don't have entrepreneurs, then you'll have, you know, very little innovation. So in order to have a functioning ecosystem, you have to have all the ingredients at a reasonable level. So you see, you know, places like China are definitely catching up very, very quickly, if not, uh, you know, surpassing uh, many of the places, you know, in the, in the what we call the Western world. Uh, but, you know, countries like Singapore, certainly Israel, Germany, where you have history, you know, very, of a lot of deep tech, which today is where the world is going, shifting, by the way, from the area of the Ubers and Lyft and Airbnb. Uh, people are going back today to the deep technology. So I do think that places with very strong scientific base, like Germany, like Switzerland, like Israel, uh, like Northern Europe, Finland, uh, will definitely continue uh, to thrive. Maybe as a final question, so given all these developments that are going on, what motivates you to, to be part of that developments and being part of the healthcare sector? Yeah, but, but because uh, again, you the, the impact uh, uh, that you feel that you're making is much, much greater, even if it's only as a facilitator, okay? But still, I think the impact by working with so many technologies, so many entrepreneurs, that want to change the world is, for me personally, uh, very, very uh, rewarding, uh, you know, and see some of these companies succeed and some of them, of course, fail. Uh, this is very, very natural. But to see this journey and to help make it happen, uh, you know, for me is very, very uh, rewarding. Now, people don't forget today, they leave jobs not because they don't earn enough, but because they don't learn enough. And I think what is exciting in this tech transfer world, if you will, is the ability to constantly learn and grow and be exposed to the most exciting people and technologies that uh, uh, are out there. I couldn't agree more. So being able to see the future <laughs> because you see what's happening inside the lab Exactly. Well, you you are doing you are exactly in the same profession, so you know what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, definitely. And so I I very much enjoyed this conversation. I feel like um, working with people like you is really what what it takes to to be happy with with the job that you're doing. Uh, you everyone in in the ecosystems kind of having this energy to make things better, to transform the the status quo, and this is. Uh, I think what it needs to 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 get to get to a better society, uh, a better planet, uh, however you want to call it. Um, so so thank you all. Highly appreciate that you had the time today. It was my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, again, uh, either in London or in Israel. <laughs> Hopefully, we will meet each other in person quite soon again. So thank you. Bye. Then. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Bye bye.